Hey and good evening everyone. Welcome to Evening Dhamma. So as promised today we're going to look at the Sabhasava Sutta. The second sutta in the Majimanikaya. And I've given many different, many talks on this sutta on different occasions. So it's a little bit different this time as we'll be doing one section per night. I don't think I've done this in before or in a while anyway. But uh, this is a sutta that I've been teaching for, it's been something that's staple thing that I've been teaching for at least 10 years more I think it's something that early on caught my attention uh, as as a sutta that is especially useful in its completeness you know other suttas will focus on a specific topic and are are important and enlightening, but as far as for for teaching purposes, as someone who's following the Buddha, uh, it's nice to have something that's comprehensive. <coughs> Sabasava, sabba means all or complete, and asava. So this is talking about the asava, the sutta. Uh, and it's a bit of a difficult word etymologically. But so asava literally means something like a stream or a, a, an outflow, a flowing kind of. And I'm not sure, I assume it was probably used in different ways before the Buddha came along and he just picked it up. I don't really know the background of the word. But uh, it was just used by the Buddha to describe uh, defilements, problems, you know, aspects about ourself that should be fixed. So kind of like a leak in a sense. Our mind is kind of leaky. It's the things that, the different kinds of things that get us caught up in the world, keep us from being free. They keep us tied, they, they keep us uh, interacting, engaging with, with suffering in different ways. And so, uh, just a little bit of background, then the asava are, are of three types. There's kamasava, bhavasava, and avijasava. I think there's a list of four somewhere, but we're going to deal with three. So I'm pretty sure that's... Uh, so yeah, that's what he talks about here, a list of three. The 
kamas uh, those things that are asava that are that get us caught up in the world related to kama related to sensuality kama means the the attachment to the senses literally sensuality it has to do with seeing beautiful things hearing beautiful sounds and so on there's many ways obviously we get caught up um, with sensuality this is the, a big one addiction addiction to sights and sounds addiction to so many things that uh, we maybe don't even realize are just an addiction to the senses so we talk about sexual attraction well in the end it's just attraction to sights and sounds and smells and tastes and feelings a lot of feelings obviously and thoughts ideas and so on you know the 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 uh, perception of a man and the perception of a woman the perception of a body part and so on Food is the same, right? It's attachment to tastes, it's also attachment to sights Beautiful, pleasant to look at food Food that reminds us, that we recognize When you see a pizza, it's not the taste, it's the sight of the pizza that makes your mouth water That creates the craving right? Reinforces the craving of the taste But there's a... Um, there's a power that comes from seeing it as as related to the senses and has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about, especially in this section, in today's talk. But that's the first one, is sensuality. The second is uh, bhavasava, which relates to the sixth sense, really, the mind. Bhavasava, bhava means uh, becoming or being, really. So it's an attachment to being something or not being something. Uh, and so we, we get caught up in the world very much By what we want to be and what we don't want to be Maybe I'm fat and I want to be thin I don't want to be overweight Or maybe I'm tall and I want to be short Or short and I want to be tall Those are supposed fairly silly uh, examples Fame is another one, is a good one Fame, power Wanting to get a job, wanting to be important, wanting to be successful, right? Wanting to be something, often relating to sensuality, but often not, often just relating to how we want people to see us, how we want to be esteemed by others, making our parents proud, making our friends jealous and, you know, Keeping up with, keeping up with our our peers, this kind of thing. Of course, in a more spiritual sense, religious sense, it's often relating to wanting to be born again in heaven. People who want to be born in heaven or want to be born as a god, wanting to be born rich in their next life, wanting to be this, wanting to be that, or not wanting to be born again. The aversion to existence Wanting to die and there be nothing 
So suicide, people who are suicidal are often this sort of nihilistic, wanting to not be born again. Both, of course, keep us tied up in the world. They're related to attachment and aversion, so there's some activity, there's some movement there in the mind that's going to lead us to be reborn again, lead us to be, even in this life, get caught up in complication. Because, of course, if you want to be something, you start to put into motion all sorts of activities that just make life more complicated. So again, something that as Buddhists we try to free ourselves from. And the third is avijasava, which is, which is a unique category of its own. Avijja means ignorance. And it's important to point out that Sometimes it's not even our goals and our desires that causes us suffering, it's just our ignorance. Right? Much of what we do wrong isn't because we're intentionally doing something, it's because we just have no clue. We don't know what's right and wrong, so we do random, seemingly inconsequential things that end up causing stress and suffering. Our ignorance. Ignorance is a big part of uh, what causes us suffering. Simply not knowing right from wrong and, and thereby allowing our defilements, allowing our partialities to grow. So these three aspects of... Uh, it's a good way of looking, generally speaking, at... Uh, at the problem you know, A big part of why we come here Is just to free ourselves from ignorance We want to learn about ourselves I mean it's important It's important to understand We're not just here to feel calm and peaceful This is a, a place to learn A place to gain understanding And, and, and knowledge about ourselves So this is the introduction This is what this sutta is going to be about. The first section, so there's there's a series of sections, I think it's six. I can't remember now. So we have seeing, restraining, using, enduring, avoiding, removing, and developing, seven. And tonight we're looking at seeing. So, um, Really, it's it's a bit misleading if you read it literally. It sounds like there are different defilements that are solved by different um, different sections, and it's not quite like that. Uh, it kind of is, but kind of isn't. There, there are we have problems, and what we have here is seven ways to deal with them. They're not really unique defilements. It's just we have these defilements and. It's important that we cultivate all aspects of this comprehensive practice in order to deal with them. Our main practice, of course, is, is seeing. This is what the first one is all about. And the Buddha is quite clear that that is really the key to understanding. But the other six are important because they help to flesh out our practice in our lives. We can't always be just practicing insight meditation 
there are aspects of our lives that are going to distract us from it, that are going to create complication for our practice. And this sutta is a way of, of helping us to deal with that, helping to keep us focused and helping to support our insight practice. So I think it's quite useful for people undergoing a course and, and in general for those of us interested in insight meditation. But the first one here is by seeing. So we're looking at uh, seeing clearly. And so for those people who are c concerned or unsure about the role that vipassana plays in the Buddha's teaching, did the Buddha really teach? Did the Buddha really teach vipassana? Some people ask. And this sort of sutta gives a really good answer and and uh, uh, reassurance that indeed the Buddha did teach vipassana. It's important to understand he didn't use the word vipassana all that much. He did use it, uh, and so it's a good word to use. But most of the time he actually talked about what vipassana means. Passana means seeing, and here he's using the word seeing. It's exactly what he means in this section. This section means that the core of our practice is something called vipassana, seeing clearly. And so here he talks about through seeing. What is it that should be abandoned through seeing? How do we abandon? How do we give up our attachments through seeing? And he introduces in this sutta, in other suttas as well, but here it's one of the, the key examples of the use of the word yoniso manasikara and ayoniso manasikara. So manasikara is a, it's important to understand this word properly because Bhikkhu Bodhi mistranslates it, I think. I'm, I'm not in agreement with his translation, which is unusual. He's, he's a pretty good translator, but of course it's hard, it's a hard word to, especially to translate, but his translation is a little bit misleading, I think. Uh, yoniso, yoniso just means wisely. It's, um, I mean literally it means to the, to the origin. Uh, literally to the origin, so uh, in regards to the essence of a thing. Manasikara, manasi means in the mind and kara means making. So manasikara means making in the mind or doing in the mind. Here it probably means keeping in the mind or what we would say in English keeping in mind. Now, holding in the mind, establishing in the mind, mind making kind of thing. So there's two kinds. There's there's wise mind, wise keeping in mind, and unwise keeping in mind. What uh, establishing things that should be established in the mind, and establishing in the mind things that shouldn't be established in the mind, which uh, I think relates very well to this sort of idea that I've been talking about a lot lately 
about these two different ways of looking at reality. I mean, it's really what he, he ends up talking about here. So unwise keeping in mind is, is um, keeping these sorts of thoughts in mind, thoughts about the past. Who was I in the past? Was I in the past? How, what did I become? Having been what? What did I become in the past? Was I not in the past? Thoughts about the future. Will I be in the future? Will I not be? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Or even thoughts about the present. It's not just past and future, he says. One is perplexed about the present, thinking, am I, am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? I mean, these are very pithy examples, but it really is just one example of of sorts of wrong uh, or unwise reflection, keeping the wrong things in mind, keeping your mind, making your mind, establishing your mind in the wrong way, you see. Why? Because this is the realm of, con of concepts. These ideas like, who am I? They don't get you anywhere. And they don't get you anywhere not because there aren't answers to them, but because the question is wrong. It's like asking, why is there a cat in this room? There is no cat in this room. It's like, so if we start asking about the cat, we're asking about something that doesn't really exist. It's of that sort of, of question. I mean, it's not, that doesn't quite capture it. I mean, the point is, not even that I don't exist, it's that the concept of I and the concept of existence in that sense is cerebral, it's intellectual, it doesn't have anything to do with reality. You know, how different is that sort of question from the concept of, of experience? You know, what is this experience? What does this experience cause? What causes this experience? Those are questions that you answer through your practice, right? Those are questions you can find very clear answers to. Very different from a question, who am I? Who was I? Who will I be? Questions about... Uh, questions about other people, questions about places, questions about things. A lot of philosophy, right? A lot of philosophy is very conceptual. A lot of religion, a lot more religion is very conceptual. Ideas of God, ideas of soul, ideas of heaven and the afterlife. Even karma is really mostly just conceptual. Uh, the Buddha was dealing, he was in a, when we talk about karma, the Buddha was, was already dealing with a concept of karma that pre-existed him. Uh, so it's not like the Buddha came up with karma, he just tried to explain what was actually going on. It's not karma, it's experience. When you, when you have ethical or unethical mind states, those ethical or unethical mind states change you. 
That's why we call them ethical and unethical. There are certain states of mind that have certain consequences. And seeing those consequences is an understanding of the true understanding of karma. It's not about I do this and this happens. It's about my state of mind or this, this state of mind altering future states of mind and future experiences. Ultimately, the, the Buddha says that the problem here is that this gives rise our, our reliance upon conceptual understanding, our reliance upon the, our way of looking at things. It gives rise to the asava. Anything that gives rise to sensuality, you know, addiction and aversion, or ambition, wanting to be this, wanting to not be this, or ignorance, anything that encourages ignorance, our activities that keep us deluded, keep us distracted, keep us clouded in the mind. These are the ways we should not direct our mind. And, and ultimately, how should we direct our mind? He says, the Four Noble Truths. When we practice, we direct our minds, especially towards the first truth, suffering. Suffering is our meat and potatoes. It's our our uh, core practice. Suffering, suffering is what we're interested in. When we talk about talk about the Four Noble Truths, we talk about the goal of Buddhism, it's in, in, in the short term the goal isn't to be free from suffering, the goal is to understand suffering. Well, it's an important distinction because if you focus on trying to be free from suffering, there's so much aversion that is created and that's what causes suffering of course. There's desire, desire to ha have peace and there's aversion, desire to not have suffering. And both of those lead only to more suffering. And it's only by studying the suffering and by understanding it, only that way can we be truly free from suffering. This evening I talked to a man who's in the hospital and they say he's been contemplating... Uh, he's been contemplating suicide. And... Uh, so I you know, was talking to him about this idea of the importance of and the benefit of focusing our attention on suffering, of living through it. And people talk about euthanizing animals and euthanizing old people. It's really kind of a shame because this is the part where the learning, where the learning comes. You just avoid it, run away from it, you're not actually doing anything constructive. If anything, you're creating more confusion and chaos. But even worse, you're, you're losing the opportunity to come to terms with this part of, of life. This is what's so great about being in a meditation center and really uh, having an opportunity to suffer. <laughs> 
because you have an opportunity to study it. It's like studying a, a sickness. Yeah, you really want to be close to the sickness and, and study it. You don't want to get sick yourself, but here we have a laboratory where we can we can suffer and watch our reactions to our suffering. It's like going through withdrawal and we, we're in a safe space where we can crave the drugs but not need to take the drugs because we're in a safe space. We're protected from our desires. We're protected from our defilements. It's really only the first noble truth that you need to see. Once you see the first noble truth, you let go of your desire for suffering, right? When you see, hey, these things I was clinging to, these things I want, it's just more suffering. There's no reason to cling to them. Desiring this, desiring that, that's only the cause of suffering. And the second, that's the second noble truth, you abandon it. You're the fourth noble truth means you're practicing the path you're you're by by observing suffering by learning to let go of it and not suffer from it you're following the path and you're realizing the third noble truth which is freedom from suffering and that's ultimately what seeing is all about we're trying to see the truth the truth that things we cling to are not worth clinging to our aversion is not productive. To free ourselves from the delusion that gives rise to partiality, desire, and aversion. That's vipassana practice. That's the essence of the Buddhist teaching, and you know, the essence, the core of the Buddhist teaching, and uh, it's the most important aspect of the practice. So that's the first of the ways of dealing with the taints. The rest are going to be, as I said, ancillary. They're, they're going to be supportive. So useful to go through for us. Tonight we have a reminder of the core of what we're doing. From here on we'll get some tips on how to support it, how to keep our practice going. So that's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for your participation. questions now. If you want to ask questions, you have to go and sign in to our website. It's just a means of filtering out the serious questioners. Filtering out the non-serious questioners. Making, making it a little more difficult. Sometimes when meditating, mind starts starting to think. And see, the object of meditation is anama rupa. For a beginner meditator, this situation would be the most beneficial act. Repeat the mantra, thinking, thinking. Yes, just say to yourself, thinking, thinking. Or there's a lot of it. Just say, distracted, distracted.
we're not trying to gain knowledge from thinking we're trying to gain knowledge from seeing I don't really want to comment on other people's writings. But your question is, I guess, about uh, sending karuna to fictional, fictional beings, which I think is, um, I think is fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, it's all fictional, really. The idea is to cultivate the quality of karuna. It's probably, I, 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 I think I get your point. It's, it's, it's certainly more powerful, I would say, to cultivate it towards someone who actually exists, right? Instead of cultivating it towards a cartoon character. But... Um, I understand how it's possible to cultivate it towards a fictional character. I mean, you're just—it's all a, an illusion, anyway. I mean, the reality is the quality of karuna, quality of compassion. If you're able to cultivate that, it doesn't really matter how you cultivate it. But uh, I think you're onto something as to it being more powerful when the person acts psychologically. It's just more powerful if the person actually exists. So yeah, in the long term I wouldn't recommend that sort of practice. It's more of a challenge and more of more rewarding to deal with people who actually exist. Uh, how the Dhamma was actually preserved in the time period between the Buddha's Parinibbana and when it was actually... Well, I wasn't there, I have no idea. I don't think anyone does. We just have other people's words. I mean, we're talking about the Buddha, right? And that may not mean something to everyone, but it certainly means something to me. This was the most, the wisest person who has lived in 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 the past uh, at least five thousand years or or more, right? Um, and then we're talking about his disciples who clearly were incredibly wise and and uh, enlightened themselves so it's not a far stretch i mean that's the, how how we differentiate the um, maintaining and, and and preserving of the buddha's teaching from the pr preservation in other religions it wasn't perfect, obviously, but it, it, it surely must have been much better because we're dealing with people who are enlightened. We're dealing with... And, and I mean, every religion, of course, will say a similar thing, but no one has the backing of that, the backing to that of the meditation practice. I mean, if you don't want to say enlightened, at least say these people were doing incredible feats of meditation practice. There's no question about that shouldn't be a question of that in anyone's mind. I mean, this is what they were talking about. This is what the texts were all about. 
to think that there was nobody actually meditating is kind of ridiculous. So that's pretty well documented. Uh, I mean, it's unreason it's reasonable to assume that. And given that they were all doing intensive meditation, or there was a lot of intensive meditation, it's not very far-fetched to think they would be able to you know, preserve the teachings fairly well. Definitely better than, than, than otherwise. Started swaying in my meditation. So just note swaying, swaying. Uh, you don't have to note anything else, of course. Don't note, never note two things at once. So if you're swaying, just note the swaying. If it persists, you want to tell it to stop. Just tell your mind stop. That's uh, Lumpo Chodoki says that. But it's, it's reasonable advice because we get caught up in it and we don't realize, but we're we're um, instigating it. Can an enlightened being stay in formal meditation indefinitely? Um, formal meditation, you mean seated cross-legged? I don't suppose so, no. That would be unreasonable because the body has, has its uh, requirements. Would you please do a talk on the Mula Pariyaya Sutta? Again, um, I was thinking about it, you know, I've skipped it by going to the second one in the Majjhimanikaya. The Mulaparyaya Sutta is interesting because at the end the, the monks aren't glad to, they aren't gladdened by the Buddha's words. And commentary makes a big deal about that. I think modern commentators have said, well, maybe it was just a typo. Maybe it, they really were gladdened, but uh, just happened to be, there's a nut inserted in there, I think. Uh, but the commentary the commentator makes a good point that it's a very abstruse teaching, and uh, it's understandable that these monks were not happy. And the Buddha purposefully tried to confuse them, tried to show them that they knew nothing, basically. And uh, so it's a hard sutta to understand. I mean, it's not that hard, but it doesn't really get into any detail. It forces you to fill in the blanks or to extrapolate. It's very terse and dense. So I don't know that there's a lot to say about it. I mean, it's, a, there's, it's not, to dis, not to disregard the importance of it, but it's maybe not, I'll take a look at it. I don't think it's really the best one for, pedagog for pedagogical purposes. But again, this is about conceiving, right? It's uh, yeah. I mean, different different people understand this sort of way of the Buddha from um, you know, distinguishing conceiving and, and understanding. But um, again, it relates back in my mind to these two ways of understanding the world. We have all these realities, and some people conceive things in them. They conceive about them. They they allow them to dis to to proliferate, to extrapolate, to become more than they actually are. And other people understand them. This is earth. This is and so on. It's really a matter of seeing things clearly uh, from an experiential point of view, and. Uh, 
conceiving about them mentally. What are the benefits of lying meditation? Well, lying meditation is really good when you're restless, anxious, distracted, overwhelmed. It's also good instead of sleep. It's good to do instead of lying down and trying to go to sleep. Just lie down and do lying meditation. Everyone should do this. You should never try to go to sleep. Worry about sleeping. Sleep is inferior to lying meditation. So try and stay awake as long as you can doing lying meditation. You'll find you're actually better relaxed in the morning. I have a hard time getting out of bed. I am aware of the sensation of aversion while I lie in bed. I have a hard time convincing myself to get out of bed. How do I get out of bed at a more beneficial hour? Good question. I would focus less on the aversion. I mean, it's important, but focus more on the liking. Uh, that's not true. I mean, for you it might be different. But yeah, aversion or attachment for most people. It's the the pleasure that comes from lying down, the pleasure of the warmth and the the softness and the comfort, the safety, the security, the simplicity of uh, of lying in bed. So try and note that as well, but note the aversion. That's great. I mean, it's great that you see it. Just try and be mindful. Hopefully, you've read my booklet on how to meditate. Apply that. Say disliking, disliking. And liking that you like and wanting to stay in bed, and so on. If you feel tired, focus on that as well. Say tired, tired. I've read when you insult, beat, or kill a monk, that has the worst karma effect you can imagine. Is that here dualistic differences are made when it exists after the Buddha, not even alive. Well, first of all, we're not non-dualistic, so dualism isn't a problem in Buddhism. That's a misunderstanding. But that's not really that. Yeah. But uh, your point is taken. Why is it worse to to attack a monk? Um, you know, it has to do with our perception of the Buddha. You know, if you're attacking Buddhism. What does that say about your your appreciation of the Buddha's teaching, right? So you're thinking of a monk who's maybe unethical. I mean, why just because he's a monk? Well, there is something there because you have respect for the robe. And even the time of the Buddha, kings would say, you know, a monk would get in trouble and they'd say you're saved by your you're saved by your hide. Uh, it's like the goat. They they use this expression the goat that was saved because of the color of its uh, skin, color of its hair, its fur, something like a, a beautiful a goat with a beautiful coat, and so the monk was saved by their robes. It's like the goat that was saved by its coat uh, because they had respect for the Buddha and they had an, uh, an appreciation, and they didn't want to 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 breach that. You know, they had fear of, of the bad karma of, of attacking Buddhism. I mean, it's not entirely rational because this person could be corrupt and the monks might have excommunicated them and so on, but it is a noble sort of idea of, of respecting robe. And, and it's not correct that, in, that if just because you attack a monk, that's the worst thing. It's not the worst thing. Attacking a Buddha, now that's the worst thing. 
I mean, there are several very bad things. But attacking, the Buddha didn't talk about attacking a monk. To tell you the truth, there's nothing in the suttas or, or vinaya, as far as I can think of, that talks about attacking a monk as being the worst kind of karma. It's, a, it's attacking a Buddha, killing an arahant. Those are the two worst, two of the worst things. An arahant it could be a lay person. I can't stop thinking about a girl. How do I go about cleansing my mind? Well, stop trying to stop thinking about the girl. When you're thinking about the girl, say to yourself, thinking, thinking. When you see an image of her, say seeing, seeing. When you like the image, say liking. When you feel frustrated, say frustrated. Stop trying to cleanse your mind and start cleansing your mind. Cleanse your mind of the desire to cleanse your mind. I mean, in the sense of cleansing your mind of the th of the thought it's cleansing your mind of the attachment to the thought which has much to do with trying to get rid of it as it does with uh, the desire to see it or to think about it so focus on the reactions not the experience there's nothing wrong with thinking about anyone and you're right you can't you can't stop it's not you it's not yours it's an important insight it helps you to let go Well, that's the questions for tonight, and that concludes our broadcast. Have a good night.